the Apostle Paul. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, whatever you do, glorify God in it. And the logic there is, do you see how he says, when people are saved, when they acknowledge this living Lord God and rejoice and delight in the Lord too, God gets glory. And so he says, I'll put aside, I'll forfeit my own good for the sake of the good of many. Because that way they too will delight in, worship, glory in the Lord Jesus as well. And God gets all the glory. And that's the big prize on his heart. And it's, I'm encouraging us this morning, first and foremost, to get this liberating call on our lives. And I want to just contrast it for a few moments with what I think is the sort of prevailing uh, wind in our culture at the moment. Let me see, let me try this on you and see if this fits. I think this is what we hear a lot of at the moment. I think you get the message quite regularly that the world is a difficult place, no doubt. It's complicated and, and often against you and working hard against you. And so the most crucial thing that we need to do as human beings is listen attentively to that, that inner voice, that inmost voice, those deep, authentic desires of the self, those, those deepest thoughts. And if we can live out our lives in such a way as to line up those inmost desires, those really deep longings of the heart, those deep, long, those deep self-expressions, if we can line up our lifestyle with those deep longings of the heart, then happiness and fulfillment will follow. Even if the world is opposing us and against us, we can still, to some degree, find a, a sense, at least, of happiness and fulfillment if we line these things up. Now, I think it's quite compelling I do think that is quite a compelling message. And it's one that's spoken a lot of. I think, maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't. But I do think it has a couple of problems. I think, number one, uh, what Jesus says is almost precisely the opposite in that he says, actually, the world outside of us is not what we need to be worried about coming in. It's not that which will come in and make us unclean. It is those desires of the heart that come from within a person. Those are the things you want to be very wary of. I mean, Jesus actually says it as explicitly as that, and he lists it all out. He says those longings of the heart, those inmost desires, often produce immorality, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. So he says you've got to be really careful with those inmost desires. You've got to scrutinize those inmost desires because actually they could be your biggest problem, not the world out there. Your big problem could be in here. So you need to watch for that. So that's, that's one problem I have with it. The other thing though I think about it is even, even if I could, right, let's, let's imagine I can sort out 
those inner desires of my heart. Sometimes I wonder, would those inmost desires really just be calling me to a new career, or a new car, or a change of clothes, or a change of husband, or wife, or whatever, would they not, would they not actually call me up to something so much greater? Would those inmost desires, when you really ponder them, if you sit on a quiet day and you think to yourself, the the span of time in which I'm living, the created world all around me, the consciousness I have that can even think these things through, is it not calling us up to something bigger? Is it not... Is it not calling us up and out to something more eternal than just our span, our short number of days? Is it not calling us up and out to a consciousness giver? Is it not calling us to something, someone to live for bigger than ourselves and our own quite fleeting, quite sort of sporadic, quite unpredictable desires that could change, often so influenced by the world around us, is it not calling us to something greater? And you know, as Christians, if we can appreciate, hey, that the God who calls us into being, the eternal one who gives life and consciousness and everything else, is the God who's revealed to us in Jesus, who actually gave himself for us, even to the uttermost, and to death on the cross then doesn't it call us up into a life of worship to glorify God with everything we have? So I think more than anything else, all right, I like, in many ways, I like that call of the world upon us to go, look at those inner desires. See if we can line those up. I just want to say, hang on a second, you want to check those desires But more than that, I want to say, when you find them, deep down, do they not call you up and out to something great and eternal and wonderful and bigger than me, transcendent? If we're going to be peacemakers, this is a long roundabout way of saying, if we are going to be peacemakers, and we're called to be peacemakers, We need something big, really big, to call our life up to. A big engine. I was driving, I've just been in North Wales with my family, and there's a hill there in a place called Carewis. No one will know it. Does anyone know Carewis? No. (laughs) It's a tiny little village in North Wales. And uh, we used to live there a few years ago now, and I used to ride my bike up this hill, very, very long hill. I was probably about a stone lighter, and I was bitter back then. And even then, this very long, sustained, steep hill, when you rode up up your bike, when I eventually got to the top, I was utterly exhausted. Very, very hard, really difficult hill in North Wales. Well, we were there. I was in the car with my whole family and Nana and Grandad. We have a seven-seater car, so the whole, the whole family was in this seven-seater car. And I just, we drove up this hill at 30, 35 miles an hour, with the greatest of ease. I don't have a particularly special car, it's got a pretty normal engine in it, but it just purred up there, 30, 35 miles an hour. And you just think to yourself, I know that hill, and cyclists and people who run, 
You know what your car is doing when it's pulling seven people and the weight of the car all the way to the top with the greatest of ease. It has a really, really powerful engine. And we need a powerful engine. If we're going to climb the hills of conflict, those long, sustained, often drawn-out deliberations, difficulties, complexities in relationship, if we're going to manage those hills, we need a strong engine, a really powerful engine. The glory of the living God needs to fuel peacemaking. Now, I want to, that's the really big point, really, that I wanted to just offer this morning, but it has sort of two further things that I just want to add on, just bolt on to the back of that. And it's worth saying, do you know, I, I, you know, I think, I think that this message of calling us up out to this big project of the glory of God is so, it's something that I think, and if you, if you're here this morning, you think, do you know what, I, I've just not really heard that before. This is something quite new and unfamiliar. What a call. What a call on our lives to live for something. Live for something other than myself. Okay. Anyway, um, we need this big engine in our lives for a couple of, a couple of things um, that I just want to just sort out, if I can, this morning. If God doesn't get the glory, if our lives aren't about giving God the glory, especially as we go about peacemaking, then always, always, someone else will. It'll be either ourselves, or our team, or our tribe. Let me read you just one little excerpt from this book, um, which makes this point. It is important, I'm quoting now, it is important to realise, if you do not glorify God when you're involved in a conflict you will inevitably glorify someone or something else. By your actions, you will show either that you have a big God or that you have a big self and big problems. To put it another way, if you do not focus on God, you will inevitably focus on yourself and your will or on other people and the threat of their wills. So if we don't glorify God that's not right front and centre of our agendas when we're sorting out conflicts and things going on, whether at home, workplace, in the church, we'll glorify something else. But what this doesn't mean, because I think this is a common misconception that he does address in the book, and I think it is common, see if you can identify with this, what I don't think he means when we talk about glorifying God in conflict is suddenly becoming a massive doormat. An infinite doormat with infinite absorption power. We're not, if we're going to be glorifying God, it's not that we're to suddenly become the kind of person who can just, I can just take it all, I'll just back down, absorb, you know, be the, be the, be the carpet that everyone walks over. He calls that peace faking and not peace-making. And it is really, really, really common in church. 
peace faking. What it does is, it says, I can't be doing with this. This shouldn't be happening. Um, this dispute or this person who's coming up against me for whatever reason, this shouldn't be happening. So I just have to process this, suck it up, or just not deal with that person. I'll just not deal with them. Because the stress and the aggro is too much, so I'll just park it and I'll talk to these people. Or I'll just carry on and just plod on like that. And what you get in families, in businesses, in schools, and in churches when that happens is all looks rosy on the outside. It's all coming in, singing songs, saying prayers, doing sermons. Underneath it all, just scratch underneath the service, and there's layers discontent, resentments, so-and-so's not speaking to so-and-so, people just avoid one another, there's unresolved situations, and it's all very volatile, fragile, could break any minute. It's as bad as peace-breaking. Right, so you know, we know what peace-breaking is. If, you, if you're the type of person who just walks into an argument and goes, well, I'm going to win this, no matter what, whether it costs me my words, whether I have to insult this person, whether I have to take them to court, I don't care. I'm going to win this argument because I'm right, so I will win it. And just what it, come what may, even if I have to be violent. Right? That's peace-breaking. We all see how damaging that is. We know how damaging that is. But that is one end, peace-breaking, that is perilous for churches, obviously, but the other end, peace-faking, is almost equally perilous. We're not called to be peace breakers or peace fakers, but peace makers who won't allow ourselves to just let things pass by or absorb things and just harbour bitterness and resentment. Let it all just carry on underneath the surface. Which is why Peacemaking presents for us, and this is the last thing I really want to say, a massive opportunity. If we're going to be genuine peacemakers, you can see this not as, like, um, you know when I actually walked into church this morning and I just walked straight through a cobweb. I, I didn't even see it as I came through the doors. I hate this place. There's <laughs> cobwebs, and they just appear from time to time. You know when you just walk into a cobweb, and you just have to flick it off your face, like, oh, or a fly, or whatever it is, and you just, ah, that can't be here. Flick it away, <laughs> like that. We can treat conflict in that way, disputes, things that happen in church, in a similar way. Something's happening here. i just got to get rid of it. I've got to deal with this very, very quickly, because it shouldn't be happening here. It shouldn't be happening, not in church. So we flick it away. Just go, deal with it as quick as possible. <laughs> this thing's happened. Someone calls someone. They sort it out. Quick, go, 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 go. Get it out of the way because this, this shouldn't be happening in church. Conflicts do happen in church. Of course they do. They happen everywhere. And church is no exception. He actually gives four categories of things that will upset one another in church. Let me just give you these. Misunderstandings. Does that happen in church? Yes, it does. Differences in priorities and values, does that happen in church? Yes, it does. Competition for resources, time, money, 
We're giving sacrificially to this life, to the life of St. John's, and it's being spent in ways that we don't agree with. That's going to cause problems. And sinful attitudes, our own habits and behaviours that come out from time to time, that is going to cause problems. We are going to have, in church life, difficulties, conflicts, things that go on, disagreements. It is going to happen. Now, you can flick it away like a cobweb. You can peace fake it and just pretend it's not happening and harbour resentment and bitterness. Or we can see conflict as opportunity. Much like we might steward. He uses the term stewarding conflict. Much like we steward money. So we all know about money, that it is a powerful thing, that it can be profoundly good and do wonderful, wonderful things, and it can also be used for great ill, and it can bring us down and cause great harm. So we know, don't we, when it comes to money, we know we need to steward money. We see it as a gift from the Lord. We say, the money I have, money in my bank account, is a gift from God, a good gift. And this master of mine that has given me this gift gives me good commands and teaches me, this is how you're to use these things, these resources that I've given you. Use it for good purposes. And if you do, if you can steward money well, it will be a great blessing. A great blessing to you, a great blessing to other people, and a great, and a great advancing for the kingdom if, if it's stewarded well. Now, can I invite us all to steward, be stewards of conflict in a similar way? Because just like money is a fact of life, Conflict and disputes and difficulties is a fact of life this side of the new creation. It is a fact of life and it will come up. They will arise from time to time here and there in church life. Of course they will. And so when it happens, you don't have to flick it off like it's a cobweb. You don't have to fake it and just brush it under the carpet. You can say, aha, okay, here we are. I have an opportunity Here is presenting before me an opportunity to steward this moment really, really well. And actually, at the other end of it, the aim is, the aim is, we're going to glorify God, we're all going to grow, I'm going to do some real self-examination through this process, there might be some conversations, there might be some stuff we need to do, and he goes through a lot of that in detail, But at the end of this, we're all going to breathe a sigh of relief and we're all going to go, thank you, God, that we've been brought through this. We've seen new things. We've understood ourselves better. I've understood you better. This church is a happier, gentler, more forgiving place. We're moving forward together. And, you know, when you see that in operation as a church, as we do this, It is for the advancement, the goodness, the furtherance of the kingdom. It's no small thing. He gives a story. I'll finish with this story. Of taking a friend to church. And he he took his friend to church and he sort of said, 
I really hope that when I go to church, there'll be great music, you know, the band will be up and it'll just be fantastic worship and then, you know, the preacher will get up and preach just a brilliant sermon and my friend who's not a Christian will come and see this and just be caught up in it and all this thing. Wow, fabulous. Anyway, he brings his friend to church and it so happens that the day he brings his friend to church, they weren't really doing those things. They were actually sorting out some dispute between the two, two elders in the church. They'd had an argument the week before, and it was quite a public argument. He didn't know about it, but there they were in the middle of a church service, and they were getting up, and they were sort of talking about... He was thinking to himself, oh my goodness, I brought my friend to church, and he's oh, I was kind of hoping we'd just have some great worship and some great preaching. What are these guys doing getting up here, just, you know, doing all their dirty laundry in the middle of the whole church? Anyway, these elders who'd had this dispute decided to speak to the church and apologize to the church. They went through this process of apologizing to each other and understanding one another, and they decided to do it publicly because they felt like they'd fallen out publicly. And so they had this little moment. And the whole church afterwards just broke out into worship in a more authentic, real, powerful way than they would have on an ordinary Sunday. And this friend that he'd brought along with him to church that day was just utterly bowled over. His response was, I've never seen anything like this. That people would be so willing to drop their pride, drop their agendas, fess up, be honest with each other, say sorry, do it in public. You don't see this stuff. I was amazed by it. Became Christian. So, in summary, as we set out on this little series on peacemaking, we're called first and foremost to see this as a great opportunity along with the whole of our lives to glorify God. Glorify God in conflict. That's going to be the, that is going to be the, the marker, the aim, the touchstone, everything for which we're working towards as we peacemake. If we don't glorify God, we'll glorify something else. Inevitably, We've got to watch out, just at the outset here, watch out for peace faking. It ruins churches. It ruins churches. Peace faking. Rather, we're going to look at opportunities as they arise in the church family. When it comes up, it will come up. To think, okay, it's my turn. Now I can be a good steward here. Lord, help me be a good steward here. Help me to steward this moment well. Help me to look to you. Help me to glorify you through all of this so that at the end of this process there will be peace. Genuine. Real. Peace.